Hello and welcome again to Pablo's channel. Um, it's the same day as I, I read the first chapter in the intro. And you know what? I just realised I forgot to say the date. And the date, after this big hiatus of not reading, is the 12th of October 2021. And um, yeah, and recently, um, uh, my brother's had another daughter, so I've got a niece. Uh, she was born on the 23rd of September um, 2021. Yeah, and she ended up going to hospital after 10 days of being born for suspected meningitis. Amazing, isn't it? But um, she's okay. She's fine. She's back home. So yeah, good. And my brother now works in uh, Hamilton Square. We will Methodist Housing Association, it's called. Yeah. Um, where um, what's his name? Something Tate. Is it William Tate? Some of the, well, the guy who did the sugar, the big sugar merchant, he had an office where Daniel's office is now. Um, yeah, very successful merchant. Got a plaque there of him. So, yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, at least we know the date now, 12th of October, that we read this and that. And I'm going to continue diving into Gerald Hurd's, in my view... Amazing mind. So we've read the solitary fly. Now we're going to read the second chapter, which is called The New Beekeeper. It's now currently, I forgot to say the time is 4 pm, and I'm reading it. Get this, another thing I forgot. I'm reading uh, these chapters from the dining room area. By the window, looking over the mouth of the Mersey estuary with the lighthouse, uh, Waterloo in the background. Peaceful. The weather today has been a bit sunny and then cloudy, big clouds and back and forth. But, uh, kept me in, and little bits of showers here and there. A day to be chilling. Oh, another thing, actually. I was uh, there's meant to be a meeting. It's meant to be going on right now, actually. I think it's start at half three, um, where we're having a, a meeting uh, to join Luff because I've only just recently decided to join uh, to leave the Walkins because I was under the operations of the Walkins, and now I'm going to be working under the operations of the Luft, which will begin on the first of November. So currently there's a lot of talk going on. Today we're having a meeting about, uh, we're going to have a meeting with the, the HR to find out our rights, what's happening. Uh, they expected me to come in on the day off for that and then Dad said, no, I don't do that, that's silly. Because um, I have been for the meetings. We will have one to once. So I'm not going to do that. Um, and I will find out the information in due time, won't I, from my friends who will ask the questions. Okay. Anyway, long intro, nearly four minutes. That's uh, captured up from the last one. 
from the last chapter. Anyway, here we go. Chapter two, the new beekeeper. Let's find out about the new beekeeper. I had to find another honey seller. Beekeepers were evidently very scarce, though I did not know how scarce. And further, my dread of business dealings leading, if made with amateurs, to social entanglements, meant that I couldn't seek in the village itself, asking all and sundry if any high fanciers were known. I was determined to find a retailer who would not involve me in village life. And luck, as I thought, came my way at my first cast. But luck is a neutral word. It can be bad, just as well as good. This, after all, was bad. But perhaps I'd better leave luck alone. I don't like the word much. It has a superstitious flavour. And I'm just superstitious enough and clever enough to know what a lot we don't know and to leave superstitions severely alone. I'm not yet out of this wood or I wouldn't be so carefully retracing my steps in this account. Heaven only knows where it may all end. So I'll be cautious and say it was destiny which took me along Waller's Lane. Waller's Lane, W-A-L-L-E-R, Waller's Lane, Waller's Lane. It's a pretty walk, anyhow, and one of the least frequented. There are one or two houses along it, but they stand so well back and are so well screened that you would hardly notice them. I never had, beyond being vaguely aware that there must be some dwellings there you couldn't avoid knowing that, for a small gate or two opens through the high, overgrown hedges here and there. I was wandering along, so much enjoying the quiet that I'd forgotten any purpose in my walk but the pleasure of taking it. But the lane dips after half a mile, and there you are, in a mossy, sunken road, which at that time of the year, Full summer is like a garden. I don't care for big views. They somehow make me yawn. Perhaps I'm not long-sighted enough. High, sloping banks covered with flowering wild plants seem to me the best possible scenery. Just at the right range, changing all the time and at the right angle. I had as it happened, actually stopped to look at half a dozen uncommonly tall snapdragon spires in full bloom, when, following their stalks to the top, my eye was caught by something beyond and above them. It was a small notice poking its head through the hedge at the bank's top. Seeing it, I noticed that there was a footpath gate beside it. The lettering of the notice was too small uh, for me to read from where I stood, so, almost involuntarily, I mounted the steps which I found set in tussocks of grass. It was with nothing but amusement and pleasure, with no foreboding at all, 
that I read in quite beautifully spaced and shaped Roman letters. The proprietor has at present a certain amount of surplus honey of which he would be willing to dispose. I think I've said that, although I'm not a writer and correspond as little as possible. I rather pride myself on my calligraphy. A scrambling age sees no discourtesy in illegibility. Illegibility. I double L E G I B I L I T Y. And no gain in penmanship. Illegibility, maybe? Illegibility. But I do, but I do. I saw at a glance that the hand that wrote that notice saw more in handwriting than the surface sense of the words. The style is the man. Very well. The hand is the gentleman. The lettering was, as all notices should be, based on the incomparable capitals of the Trajan column. T-R-A-J-A-N. But anyone whose caps were so sensitive and whose serifs so assured uh, would certainly command. I thought an excellent italic. Then there was the intriguing fact that a notice written with such care should be posted in a moss-grown lane and, moreover, almost out of sight. And, finally, here was my honey, a supply as sequestered as I could require. Three things like these coming together are some explanation. If the whole thing seems inexcusable for my unprecedented precipitancy, 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 precipitancy. Almost without reflecting what reception I might meet and what involvement I might incur, I lifted the latch walked up a path which wound through a hazel thicket and suddenly found myself, to quote the poor dear Mr. Yeats, in a bee-loud glade. A lawn on three sides had dense herbaceous borders sloping up to thick yew hedges over the top of which a fringe of hazel sprays could be seen. On the fourth side, the lawn ended in a low white house with French windows opening onto the grass. On the lawn itself, in tidy rank, stood those miniature Swiss chalets which had taken the place of the romantic, but I understand, insanitary skep. S-K-E-P. Not skip, skip. The air was dense, with the chalet's population. After our village tragedy, I stood with some apprehension, wondering where these queer socialists might rule that trespass began. Honey-making must stop, and all workers must unite to attack the exploiter. I was keeping my eyes so carefully cocked to judge whether an air attack might be impending that I started with surprise when a quiet voice at my elbow remarked, they are not militant workers, these. I get quite good enough results up till now. At least my purposes from the Dutch Queens, so I don't continually disturb the poor thing's temperament. 
they are nervous enough anyhow, without making them more excitable with Italian blood. I turned to see beside me a serene face, a sort of unpolitical Dante, if I may put, if I may so put it, and not seem highbrow. It was cold, perhaps, or maybe it was, maybe it would be juster to say it was super cooled, cooled by thought until the moods and passions which in most of us are liquid or even gaseous, had become set and solid. A face which might care little for public opinion, but much for its opinion of itself. But I mustn't run on like this. I expect it is the fault of a bad writer. Can't keep down to facts. Perhaps I didn't notice all this at once, but I was impressed. I know, because I remember saying to myself, how like Dante, and then having to check myself, for my mind is always flighty, as anyone will see who has got so far as this. Because I began to speculate whether if Dante were reincarnated today, what he would do to get in his visit to hell. Where would he find the cave opening? Modern war, maybe? Or in a city slum? but hardly in the country or in a village. You are my first purchaser, he went on, evidently seeing that my mind was wandering and wishing to put me at my ease. It is good of you to walk over so far from your place. You know me then, I interrupted. I don't go much into the village. I have no friends there and don't remember catching sight of your face. You are a newcomer, aren't you? I often come down the lane, but I don't remember seeing before the notice which explains my call. No one else has, he replied. It has been there a little while, and considerable numbers of the village quality have come down the lane, but none has troubled, troubled to go up the steps to see what is written on it. That remark surprised me. It seemed out of character somehow. I couldn't resist, therefore, saying, though it was perhaps a little impertinent, you keep as close a watch on your lane and your notice as a fisherman on his stream and float. In a way, yes and no, he smiled, evidently not at all put out by my personal remark. I thought, however, that it would be polite to put myself back into the picture. You come up to our end of the village and have seen my house, I questioned. I must confess no, he answered, again smiling. You see, he added, I have been busy setting in for some time and, like yourself, my reason for coming to the country was not for company, but to be busy with all these incessant interests which the town, with its distractions, never really tolerates. But how? Well, he kindly forestalled me. There are so many ways of being wise after the event that I have sometimes thought during my life that if we would only act on that rather despised motto, we would need to ask far fewer questions, which you and I agree are always, if only the slightest, infringement of that privacy we both prize so highly. 
I could not help smiling at the way he had read my thoughts, and he smiled, at least with the muscles round his keen eyes, if not with his thin lips. No one, he continued, who has taken some little care not to disregard things can fail to notice how much of our past and our settled environment we carry about with us wherever we go. I'm not a geologist, but soils always repay a little attention. This village, like many another in England, is a jigsaw puzzle of earths. That, by the way, tells us something about the past. Our ancestors planted these settlements in order to live off the soil, not to retire from town. So there has to be water and woodland and tilth, T-I-L-T-F. Woods for fuel, good soil for harvests, and above all, good water. To get all that means living where the layers of soil have been cut by water, so as to give man a salvage slice of each of the qualities he wants. Now you live up at what was the clay end of the village. I'm near at the light heath soil. You have tiny patches of dried clay on your trousers. One clue helps another. I probably should not have been able to pick up that first clue, which tells me where you live if it had not been able to give me the second indication. That you live alone and don't like being looked after too rigorously. In fact, can entertain yourself best when alone. Can entertain yourself best when alone. But why? The notice he intervened, which is well written. Asking the passerby to purchase, and yet put just out of ordinary eye range. An experiment? Village life, we agree, is a problem. Free, yes, but apt to lose its freedom even more quickly than town. A researcher does not need absolute solitude. Indeed, when I was working, I often found that it helped to talk over a problem with an interested, if less absorbed, mind. Some steps of reasoning can be run through and checked more quickly in speech than by writing them down. And often the listener, however inexpert, will see a slip oneself has overlooked. A curiously simple and neat, naturally selected trap I thought. You'll be thinking I treat my neighbours as prey and you sprang the gin. But I may want help on a problem which should interest the right man as much as it intrigues me. I'm not a, an apiarist and don't want to meet such specialists. You remember Henry Ford's dictum? A specialist is someone who is always telling you what can't be done. In pure, as in applied science. I have found that to be that to be true. Someone who tells you that it has all been found out, that there is no further mystery, there is nothing more to discover. You're doing the search in bees, I interrupted. But I only want to eat their honey. Exclamation mark. You shall but hear me out. Then, if you become my customer and not my acquaintance, I can have the parcel of honey left on you regularly 
and you need not risk any further conversation. I came down here to study bees. Honey to me is simply a byproduct I must dispose of. I'm not a metalinkerist. That's a metalinkist. Linkist. Metalinkist. M-A-E-T-E-R-L-I-N-C-K-I-S-T. Whoever had this book before me put a pencil and underlined it. I have to find out what that means. I'm not a metalinkist. Linkist, I think. I believe he greatly overrates the intelligence of bees. Anyhow, I'm not interested in what intelligence they may have. All my life, I have been estimating human intelligence, not by its books or words, but by its tracks. Now I want to study something else, but still by its tracks. I want to know about bees' reactions. After all, they are social beings given to living in dense towns. But, though like us, whoever different, there are no end of problems to be studied. There are the particular flowers they go to, the peculiar vision they have so as to pick out such blooms, and so the particular sort of honey they yield. We might get special brands of honey from certain broods. I was faintly interested, but began to feel much more strongly than I wanted to get my honey and get away. Yes, I said vaguely, I expect a market could be found for super honey, just as for special proprietary jams and marmalades. He saw my restlessness. If you step inside, if you will step inside, I will make up a parcel for you, he remarked, leading me toward the house. We entered the room on the left of the hall. It was evidently his laboratory. I will bring you to the combs and the jars in a moment, he said. I apologise for boring you. Yes, yes, and it was not. I must again beg your pardon. Unintentional. You remember Oscar Wilde's silly remark? A gentleman is one who is never rude unintentionally. I think... However, it may be more truly said that a trained mind is one who never bores unintentionally. The boredom which had been growing vanished, and again I felt an altogether pleasant surprise. One gets stiff when faintly startled. I'm, <coughs> I'm afraid I don't quite understand, Mr. Question mark. Bowcross, if you will, he answered with the, that quiet smile of his, which was certainly disarming. The truth is, he added, I did first put up my notice as a sort of wager with myself as to whether in this village I should find a fellow curioso. Not a specialist, not a conventionalist. I own I discovered, only before you did, that I had lost my bet. Why, then, I acidly remarked, did you continue? Please step over here, came the quick reply, almost an order. He was standing with his hand on a downturned glass bell jar. It covered a square of white paper on which lay a small object. The step I took almost involuntarily at his command brought me where I could see what it was. 
A dead bee, I asked, somewhat challengingly. He lifted the glass bulb and handed me a large magnifying glass. As soon as I took it, with a pair of forceps, he lifted another dead bee off the windowsill and placed it beside the first on the square of paper. Would you please examine these two bodies through the lens? They don't look very different to me. I was just replying when under the lens a forceps point advanced and pressed onto the abdomen of one of the dead bees. The body cockled a little, and quite clearly the sabre-curved sting was fussed out and retracted as soon as the pressure was released. Before I could ask what such an unilluminating experiment showed, however, the forceps point darted onto the abdomen of the second bee. Depressed it in the same way, and came, and out came the sting. But what a sting! It curved round until it seemed it would pierce through the chitin male. That's a C H I T I N chitin, uh, chitin male of the dead insect's own thorax. The voice at my shoulder said, "There's a pretty problem here. The last is, of course, an Italian." Fierce bees, anyhow. But I think from comparing the body with some care, with some with standard Italian, that this is a special variety. Certainly, it was psychologically remarkable. Even if the rest of it, except for that sting, is physiologically normal. It had the temper of a hornet. It attacked until it was killed. Of course, it came in a troop. So I dissected a number of them. They all had these super stings. That was remarkable enough to an amateur apiarist. But what was even more remarkable was the result of a small biochemical experiment. Turning to a shelf, he took out of a rack a glass phial, P-H-I-A-L, not thicker than a, neat, a knitting needle. There are hardly half a dozen drops of venom in this tube, he remarked. I have had to gather it from the stings of these bees. Perhaps I would have overlooked the necessity of doing so if it had not been that when my colonies were attacked, when I saw what was on, I myself donned bee veils and gloves and got ready to defend myself with a special bee smoker. My poor mastiff ran out. The invaders were not really attending to us any more than we human beings in a battle. Waste our ammunition on the crows and vultures. But one of these miniature monsters swooped past us, caught the dog's smell, dived, struck, and my poor Rolo gave one howl and fell over. He struggled for some time when I carried him inside. I thought a camphor injection, that's C-A-M-P-H-O-R, camphor injection, was going to bring him through. Though his pain was obviously so great that I thought of putting a bullet in his brain if it did not seize. But suddenly, rigors seized him, his tongue lolled out, and he was dead. I have had the opportunity of studying toxicology 
for some years. The only venom I can compare this with in strength, though of course, its chemical base is the formic acids group, is the incomparably virulent secretion of two spiders. The small yellow, which is found in northern Queensland, and the so-called black widow of Southern California. Even the giant ant lately found in Guyana, Parapanera clavata, Parapanera clavata, though one sting of it can paralyse a limb for some hours, does not approach the toxicity of this poison. But, I said, what does all this mean? I felt rather than fully recognised a growing sinisterness in the atmosphere. I wanted to get away, wished I'd never come, but felt somehow that to go off now with the problem all vague and pervasive was only to carry it with me. Like a swarm of bees trailing a man who can't shake them off his track. His next words confirmed my doubts and made my misgivings all too unpleasantly definite. I told you, I put up my notice because, first, I wanted to carry out a casual experiment in seeing whether I could select a possible confrere, 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 uh, C-O-N-F-R-E with an accent, R-E, and then, after I had a more remarkable visit than I had counted on, by what I think I may call, in every sense of the word, inhuman visitors, I saw I must signal for someone who had two characteristics, that he was a bit of a recluse, so that he might not gossip about what even then seemed, as though it might turn out to be a business both ugly and easily driven out of reach, and also that he was a honey lover. Why the honey part, I said, rather feebly and vaguely. My whole thought was bent on the unpleasant realisation of how like a fly lined on flypaper, I was getting every moment more firmly embedded in this beastly business. Because you certainly have noticed that the Hergroves were the only people who sold honey in this place. They may not do well. It is hardly a millionaire's occupation. But they have had no other. So anyone who was a honey fancier and so would not buy the shop stuff could tell me about the hair grows, for he would certainly be their customer. But why couldn't you call yourself, I asked, with weak irritation, or go openly into the village and inquire about the hair grows? Why all this hokey pokey and setting little traps for the innocent curious? I tried to make my remarks sound jocular, but the truth is that I was wanting to be as rude as I could with safety, for I was rapidly getting cross over the whole thing and, what was worse, felt that after being cross I might find that I had no reason to be frightened. So I added, to smooth things over a bit, though I must own the trap has done its work neatly enough. He smiled again, kindly. There could be no doubt of that, and I could not help feeling that if I had to get into a mess 
with other people's business. It might be hard to imagine a stronger and more capable man with whom to face a storm. Even now, I still wish that I had kept clear of it all. But there's destiny, of course, as I've already said. Don't say trap. Say my SOS, to which you have most generously responded. His voice was equally reassuring. I couldn't go asking questions in the village because that might rouse suspicion and would certainly have brought me, whether or no correct information, undesirable allies. Somehow I felt a certain quite unreasonable reassurance at being called an implication, but being called by implication a desirable ally. Though, all that it really meant was that I was getting still more committed to schemes. I did not understand and did most actively, if vainly, suspect. To visit the Hergroves themselves was, of course, out of the question, even more than making inquiries about them in the village. It is quite clear what he or they have done, though I must say it was so startling that it had shot me back to a line of thought which I had told myself I had left for good. Hergrove has bred a bee to put all other beekeepers out of business. I confess it is an ingenious notion. I confirmed it though. I've already found that up till a few years ago there was quite a lot of beekeeping in this district. Now, as you know, you can't get honey anywhere locally. But, I broke in, for I must own my interest in this extraordinary story was getting the better of my, my, of my self-concern. The whole tale was so mad, bad and ridiculous. But what an absurd amount of energy and ingenuity to spend just, to spend just up to corner the honey market of Ashton Clearwater. Yes, I thought that too. And it puzzled me, he replied. Of course, inventors are kittle cattle. For the sake of an experiment, they'll ruin themselves. And to make a discovery, they'll risk any number of people's lives, their own included. Still, it puzzled me. Of course, after the attack on my hives, I realised that a thing like this, and pretty certainly would, grow. Apiarists are not used to suspecting people. Here, Grove may have lit on this thing as a pure researcher and then have hunted about to see how he could make it pay. His superbeat may, indeed, have acted like a renaissance bravo or a Frankenstein's monster and gone off killing on its own. That may have put the idea into his head. Oh, opportunity, thy guilt is great, this thou. Please, I said. I prefer at this point psychology to poetry and facts to anything. Well, he smiled, I can tell you the hair-grow bees came literally out of the blue. Fortunately, they are so stupid that even if he did send them specifically, they could not tell him that their expedition of extermination had failed. How did it fail? How could it? I exclaimed. You want only facts, he chuckled, and no theories. That, of course, 
is not possible if you wish to understand. But the fact remains, as your ears and eyes tell you, the home team survived. Then, I said, with a sigh of relief, they are not so deadly as we feared. Oh yes, they are, he answered quietly. I told you, I drove off the first attack for myself, and when my poor Rollo was dead, that's R-O-L-L-O, I could not, I could do no more with him. I decided to see if I could save at least my bees. Wrapped in bee veils and gloves, I charged the smoke thrower with a peculiarly strong smoke I used once when I was attacked a long ago in not dissimilar circumstances. What I then took to be an accident, but now suspect was a similar discovery being used by a man not unlike our present customer. Discoveries are generally made twice over and often fall into undesirable hands and even come into undesirable brains. But was to smoke enough? I wanted him to get on. Age and <clears throat> a long practice calm had made him more willing to view the past as equally interesting as the present than I than was I. I had spoiled my walk, missed my lunch, and not even secured my honey. As a matter of fact, I was only staying on until I could learn how safe it was to go. I had no intention of leaving if there was any chance that in quiet bend of the lane there might be a sudden hum and before one could cover one's face one would be pricked to death with red hot knitting needles but I had no intention of staying wasting more of my time the moment I could be sure that the coast or rather the sky was clear yes yes the smoke worked I mightn't be here if it hadn't. Once crept up my leg and I smoked it only just in time. They're so devoted they'd work their way through anything. I doubt that gloves would be much protection for long against those super stings. They are prodigious fighters, even normal bees. We'd have had no chance if they had been even a fifth our size. He saw my dulling eye, went over to the door and called out, Mrs Simpkins, please lay another place and call us as soon as lunch is ready. He turned back to me. You will stay, won't you? Indeed, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think you had better. I agree. I have taken long in telling you how the land lies, but cases such as these I have found can only be grasped and caught he added after a pause, if one understands much detail which at first sight seems irrelevant. <clears throat> From the back of the house I heard wheezing, but quite reassuring complaints. Lunch as soon as it's ready, and it's ready and been ready this 20 minute and more, more, more. Well, there's a bit of cold salmon. And the partridge pies warmed up none too bad. Couldn't have kept it waiting yesterday, but today it's taken it nicely. Cold gooseberry tart with the whipped cream. 
never expected it to whip today. The inventory was was as good to my eye as to my ear, and even better on the tongue. My host knew about food, and also about wine. He taught both well and fully, as if he wouldn't touch on shop at mealtimes. I was hungry at first, fell to, and fell in with his mood. But toward the end, it struck me that it was a grim little meal, really. Here was I, with an unknown man, who had already dropped a number of most sinister hints, and had shown me also, in the other room, enough venom to make me die in agony in less than a minute. And, what's more, for the coroner's inquest dismissed my death as though I had been only bitten by a flea and taken it badly. It was the thought of the coroner that made me push back my plate. If you have finished, my host said, rising, I won't detain you for more than a few moments longer. We should, however, finish our discussion, he added, dropping his voice out of the range of any easily frightened ears. Again, I felt that queer, irrational disturbance when pleasure at flattery is mixed with misgiving as to the flattery's motive. I was already alarmed and had good reason to be. However, I repeated to myself, better know the worst. Ostrich tactics are little use when you may be faithfully stung in the back. There you go, chapter two. The new beekeeper, Mr. Bowcross. And the, the next tune, Steve Vokes just came in, has just finished that last sentence, that last line, in fact. Okay, hope you enjoyed that reading, and you will join me for chapter three, which is entitled Rolanding the Oliver. Thank you for listening. Stay well, my friends.